Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 25 with Joseph B. Avenue and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? It's a ugly shot there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So we're back for our second edition of Six Poets You May Not Have Heard Of. There's a lot of poets that we've never heard of. We are each going to talk about a poet today, Joseph and I, and then later in the episode, our friend Nathan Hawks is going to join us by phone to tell us about two poets as well. Indeed, and I'm going to take you to Cleveland, Ohio, for two poets this uh, time around. No offense to my Cleveland poet friends, but... I could probably tell you about a hundred poets that you've never heard of because they all live in Cleveland. <laughs> uh, because there's lots of poets there. It's the kind of town that breeds poets, you know? Everyone's still drinking uh, Red Label or Schlitz or Strohs. You know, this time we were at a bar and uh, my, my friend reminded me that the that Strohs backwards spell shorts. Anyways. Are there any bars where you can look at, at look out at the Hart Crane statue while you're drinking? There is a bar that you can see it, actually. Yeah, it's some uh, little bar down, like, you go down this hill, and you go down kind of by the river, and then it's, like, over on the left, there's one bar in the corner there. I want to say it's called Hoople's. <laughs> no, I think it might be called Hoople's. Uh, who did who who did all the young dudes? Mott the Hoople? Yeah, Mott the Hoople, right? And and didn't Bowie write that song for them? Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty sure that uh, the Mott the Hoople's from Cleveland. I think that's, I think that's why it's called And Hoople. the bar is named after Mott the Hoople? I think that's it's called weird. Hoople's. Oh, that's cool. If that's the case, you can yeah. sit in hoopals, yeah, and, and listen it, to all the young dudes while you're reading the bridge and look out at the Hart Crane statue. The Hart Crane statue is. Um, <laughs> have you ever been to it? Did we yeah. go to it? Yeah, yeah. We went to that left side of that little park down there, and it was over there. Yeah, it's a real pretty little spot. It uh, is under yeah. the bridge. It's real. It's real unique. I I can't really think of another place in quite like that. No. Yeah, it's it's right next to the big bridge and next to the Cuyahoga River. Okay, so I'm going to tell you about somebody from then, and I'm going to tell you somebody about about somebody from now. The then is a wonderfully awesome story. It's a tribute to my friend and friend of many a poets and many a cadaver, Jim Lang. Jim was a photographer for the hospital. So he photographed all sorts of crazy stuff. Okay, I don't think I knew that. For a living. For a living, that's what he did. And because that's who he was as a poet, and I mean that, like he was a photographer as a poet. Yeah. He did uh, an awesome amount of photography, and, you know, he'd photograph his friends, and he would photograph himself, and he would photograph scenes, and, and then he would take those photographs... And he would make these sort of like really cool broadsides where it would just be a couple of cut up photographs on one side and then he would lay out some poetry on the other side with sometimes another foam of another photo of a poem. They were all all crazy awesome Xerox copies and mimeograph stuff like on just like his like probably running it off on his lunch break on the copier at the at the at the at the at the uh, at the hospital. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So Jim you know, 
I can only speak about my my experience as a gym because I know a lot of people had different um, things with Jim and different relationships with him. And uh, as a poet, as a friend, poet, as a photographer, as a coworker, as a father, uh, as a as a you know as a son of a bitch, <laughs> um, you know, because Jim was a cantankerous kind of guy, but he would tell you that what he thought he he you know he always had some sort of poet talk with Jim was always about poetry, so. Jim would he would think about what he was going to say to you just a little bit extra longer, and then he would say it to you in a poem. So, what was kind of his philosophy on poetry? Yeah, I mean, he was all he was all about like uh, it was sort of like this cut up this this cut up but fortuitous cut up, and it was it was like this real particular kind of type of like poetry for the people. But it was all like he would he would lower he would take certain lines and make them lowercase and things, and he would play with. I mean, it was all like very visual, but done in this way that kind of got you thinking about things a little bit differently and broken up a little bit differently and doing the same thing as what they were doing in the mimeograph revolution, but doing it on like a real, like, like a real cool level. He, like a real kind of like sly level. He had this thing called Bagazine and Bagazine. Uh-huh. And, and I know they have, I know Johnny has x-ray books. He has got Bagazine going on out there in San Francisco too. But, um, I think Lang was doing Bagazine a long time and, you know, he used to send the Bagazine every month over to his friend Mike Basinski at Buffalo, at, uh, at, you know, he's running the old books, uh, rare books uh, thing at Buffalo. Bagazine was like this thing where Jim would just get bags, you know, it would be a bag, and it would just be, you know, it would be like, it would have like some poems in it by like him and his friends and like. Oh, I thought you were well, saying printed. it was printed on a bag. It's it, well, no, no, it no, in it a would bag. Come, it would come every time. It would come <laughs> in a different type of bag, and it would and it would be like this weird. And it would have incense in it and tea and stickers and, <laughs> you know, it was like this, like, thing that he would just give out. You know, whether you wanted it or not, you know, he would give it out. He would pass it out to people. You know, he, he was an extraordinary, extraordinary guy who did so much uh, work and made so many magazines and, had, and, and, and did so many of these broadsides, you know. And then he would mail stuff to people and he would have these, like, mail poems that whole, you know, tradition of male poem work, too. And yeah, yeah. He had all that. And he took pictures of his friends. And... So kind like, of documented the Cleveland poetry scene at the time. Jim was the... Jim's the... Jim's the first picture in Hotel Poem, which is the photographs on film by Charlotte Mann, uh, documentation of uh, 50-some poets of Cleveland. And that's Lang is in here in the first uh, photograph. So to give you some idea, maybe I could give you this... Um, I'll read, I'll read this piece because it seems like a good thing to read. Feedback, talk back, read walking the ties between rails one and two or two and one. I am a trochee and allegro speed lost in thought allowed by the steely lines that need no attention to keep you on track like the safety of a night bed during sleep between waking and ghost towns with the vanished sinew of orange bears. Nice. That's Jim. But then he would take it and then he would make it into a visual poem. Oh wow! So on, you, so on side of it, maybe we'll be able to post some of this. But it's kind of one column that looks sort of like what you would expect a poem to be, and then the others are kind of you would read down the page, and then they're just single line, one letter per line, and then there's a little curved one on the side too. Right. Pretty pretty something different. Oh, and he's holding a camera at himself in yep, the photo. That's too. his photo. Okay, nice. So, so this, let me say something to that. You know, the poet who works in the visual tradition, you know, and I think that's what it comes down to or what it, 
is what is a different approach. You know, it's like when you have that other sort of visual tradition in your work when it comes yeah. through. You know, it's like tapping into a different. You know, I guess I guess is like you know some some of us work in the visual tradition, some of us work in the oral tradition. You know, the performative tradition. Um, but like Jim was definitely like a visual tradition, you know, sort of poet. Um, I think if I remember correctly, I'm not too sure if it was like for a few years or a little while, you know, Jim ran across the border and hung out and, um, I'm pretty sure this is true. If someone wants to call me on this, they can, but pretty sure uh, Jim for like a season or something, he worked at coach house. Okay. Uh, up in Toronto. Yeah. Or I think it was in Toronto. Yeah. Wherever it was in Canada. Uh, but Jim worked up at the BP nickel. You know, when BP Nickel was editor. Oh, okay. Nice. So he nice. was up there doing, you know, so he kind of pulls from that, you know, tradition, that Rust Belt, you know, r- around the lake, kind of like, I don't know, it's it's, it's something that handed over from the Canadians, you know, um, this very particular type of tradition. But Lang, uh, Lang has a, you, you know, you can go to at... Uh, we'll like, put the link up. Yeah, Lang has uh, in Jim. That's our Facebook tribute page for Jim. And there's a ton of stuff. Do you want to maybe read at I least know. one more poem from him? I do. This is sort I mean, of... You can read more than one if you want, but no, this at one's least good. one more. This one's good. <laughs> this one's good. Of course. The tires go flat as it sees a service station. No emergency, no life insurance, no warning, no problem, no sense. Later, huge purple curtains at the laundromat. Drag a woman into the dryer by the hooks. She spins slowly like a Duncan in time to wonder why about what's obvious to anyone else. She's saved. Help, help. The memory isn't accurate. Not a lesson. The curtains outlive the last death. She never sees coming either, by definition. Hmm. Uh, There's a little broadside. See if I can throw another piece up in here. Yeah, I'm just I'm just grabbing random from the link site because there's so much stuff up here. Talk of weather, and weather is spelled W H E T H E R. I picked up a hitchhiker during the winds, blackouts, and floods. One dinosaur tree twisted, heaved, shook, torqued, sheared against the black sky, and stood stretched the next morning. Yawned, lucky. The scared rider jumped coffee, scrambled branches, and skidded puddles. The dark eye from under the bed feared what home left without him. I like that one, yeah. So you can go on here, and there's tons of stuff. Just photocopied cut-ups, you know, pictures and poems, and some pretty cool stuff for sure. I'm going to grab language poems. Language poems, like L-A-N-G-W-A-G-E. <laughs> Language. 72 photos. So this is like, these pieces are a little different, see? What these pieces are, are, this is like another thing that he would do with broadsides, is he would make broadsides, and then he would take those broadsides, and he would put them in public. And then he uh-huh. would take pictures of them. Okay. So because, I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> so he would make these pieces and then incorporate them. And he did digital collage too, where he would incorporate digital um, little pieces, you know, with different things. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Let's read this one. It's called Bar Room. Bar Room. 
parody of testosterone drunk poet society macho tight rope see how drunk you can get in public on legal opiate and still perform for the feds a place to get stiff with the boys and want to be boys frightening or irrelevant to kids and lactating women the natural poets a room worn without home to maintain the hopeless who quit for the day or for good Never a poem made drunk or stone, but lots while walking the short, tight rope up to it. Drunkenness can make for good reading, especially of other words. Definitely sounds like a lot of poetry readings I've been to. Yeah. Yeah, so that's like him being, crit- you know, yeah, not critical, I guess, like just a pretty observant of the, the thing, the thing that happens. But yeah, it sounds like he kind of did try a lot of different things. I don't, I mean, I think even just the ones you've read are all doing very different things. Some of the, a couple of those were sounded a little more experimental. Yeah. Where the other two are more just kind of observational of something, which, you know, which is nice too, but I think he went back in that. I think he went back into this like little truncated language thing too, you know, more visual stuff. Um, this is, uh, this is uh Brie posted. This is my, one of my favorite pieces of him. I should, I, w- I should set this in letterpress type and do and do a broadside of this. Love means you can't do without lack of consent. Love means you can't do without lack of consent. Sell division and profit in friendship. The profit in the poverty is a friendship. Sell division and profit in the poverty is a friendship. <laughs> Sell division. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's cool. Well, cool. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's like a sort of a reductive, you know, yeah. kind of circles back on itself like a figure eight. Um, so, yeah, Lang, I mean, Lang, you know, I met Lang and all those cats at the uh, West 25th Street bookstore on, on, um, on uh, the west, near west side of Cleveland by the, by the west side market right there on West 25th in Lorraine. Uh, and they welcomed me to their circle uh, right after, you know, I mean, I was when I moved back to Cleveland – uh, 2000-ish, one, two, 2003, I think, after UMass, and uh, I would go and drop in on them and just meet them all and hang out with them. And it was one of those bookstores where you could still, like, dig and find, like, cool shit and, like... Yeah, yeah. It was, like, next to nothing, you know? I got up there, this, I got up to Cleveland last weekend because I was uh, doing the, the book fair, the Bound book fair. Oh, yeah, Museum yeah. Of Contemporary yeah. Art, where there was uh, different bookmakers and people from around the country... Uh, it's the third year going up and doing it, and there's all these different. You know, it's more it's regional, but it's people. I think I might come the farthest from anybody. I think everyone's like New York and and Chicago and Detroit and in that Pittsburgh and triangle over there. Yeah, that's yeah. the Rust Belt. Um, I'm not too sure who else is coming further, but uh, uh, I came up and did a Mimeo pop up and uh, met a bunch of people, and it was cool because I was with this one this one next to these one uh, resograph guys. And then I was next to, uh, on the other side, I was next to um, R.A. And this young lady who I met named, named uh, Zena Smith. And, yeah. And so this is a, a chat book? Yeah. And, you know, I was just like, here's the thing. I talked to her all weekend, and she was just really with it. You know, I, I have this, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to shit on millennials too much. But there's there's a group of younger ones, like the ones coming up really young now. Who are like who are like I want to say somewhere between like nineteen and twenty two like they're they're really kind of yeah, like yeah they're the super young ones 
They're like the super young millennials, you know? I guess everyone coming up is still millennial, but there's going to be a new term for the new generation, I'm sure. But some people, like, I, I've, I've had these, like, really particular interactions with 19, 20-year-olds that are, like, extremely thoughtful, extremely precocious, have a completely different look, outlook than their... They're twenty-year-old. I mean, I guess I, I hate to make generalizations about that no, anyway. And then I would think anyone who's writing poetry is a little bit of a weirdo. They're okay, probably I'm different sorry. from their I generation. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for calling me on the overgeneralization, but I've met a number of nineteen, twenty-year-olds that really impressed me. And yeah, yeah, you know, and and just her pickup, her take up on things, and like seeing her interact with other people, and seeing how she talks about her work to people. It's, it's done in this, like, real true, kind of really serious, modest way. She had fans, people who knew her work, who came up and oh, bought her okay. new book. Nice. And, um, we had a really nice exchange. Here. I like that cover. It's very it's very simple, um, it but it's pretty. Like, yeah, I mean, it's it's got a little hand with in two color. That's different, red and blue, different color from the text on the on the cover. It's nice. It's- yeah, and there's this, 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 this um, Kyle Osborne, who's uh, really... Uh, so who printed this? This, this, this is, Yeah, this is this him. Is, this is printing, publishing, distribu- distribution, um, outlandish press. Okay. You could take that card, actually. But uh, outlandish press. Uh, press, And uh, he made this book. And I'm really impressed by it, because he's, he's using, like... He's using some, like, speckle stock, you know, that looks to me like some Fox River or something, with, like, some, some really nice kind of, like... Kind of pulp to it. And that cover stuff. Nice. Yeah, it, it, it's just a nice production. It's a five by seven book, so he stepped out a little bit and like didn't worry about staying in the same standard. Sorry, staying 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 in the standard of books. He decided to make they decided to make it a little smaller. It's a real pretty book, and uh, I just started reading it at breakfast today. And so, so I you just, found some gems in there. You wanna you wanna share yeah, something with us? Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna read a couple pieces now. Uh, we might we might. Uh, we might, I, we might have a special treatment. We might get Zena to, to record a couple of her pieces and send it in. I, I messaged her yesterday. She said, okay, but I got to go give her a little reminder today. And maybe we'll have her reading some pieces. And then you, then you won't have to hear Mago's sad have interpretations. But, uh, so, so if, if you read, if you read, if you hear me reading after this moment, then you know that we didn't get her, but I'm going to try. Well, to- I'll probably edit that out if we don't get them from her. That's fine. But if you hear a young female voice. Makos is not, like, a great mimic. The longest nights, when loneliness dispels certainty of affection, each bird awakens to greet me in song. The daylight pale and ungainly as a newborn horse, stretching thin limbs through my drawn blinds, finds a path towards my eyelids, my weak links. Each patch of velvet darkness, a wet mouth, stuffing cotton into mine, sucking my resolve out like bone marrow, teeth marks of pillowcase and wrinkled sheet working red trails into my thighs, softness cutting softness, pearls of sore tears, sand slips between the caverns of consciousness and wisdom, I wish to sleep forever, in truest form, least sinister of deaths yet. Self-preservation greets most unwelcome acquaintance, face of day. Oncoming gold, a chariot racing towards my lips, glossed by banana meat and wax. In a stained-glass portrait of the starving artist, I reflect bruised purple and jaundice yellow as a visage. Left in the puddles are feathers from bathers long gone with the dusk. 
In the picture, it is only the haunting of those tits and lips I see, but I deem it a work of genius through gritted teeth to please a jailer, a clever darling. My eye sparks like a tin can hit with a credible shot, and the ricochet kills any compassion in my voice. The night is Tijuana hot and justice slutty, so I stick to myself, an irreverent blessing from a fallen angel, a snake oil vendor. Let it be known, and from known to understood, I am trying to reach you. But if I don't, let it be fucked. I can only afford so many stamps. <laughs> I, like the, I like the end of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the thing is, is these young poets, like, I see the way her, her words are on the page, and I really think, you know... I really think she's got some potential and I really think that she's, you know, she can tell she reads, you know, you can tell she's a reader. You can tell that she's, you know, start, you know, she's starting off somewhere. I think this is like her third chat book, you know? So, so that sounds like maybe we will be seeing a, a, a full collection from her sometime soon. If this is her third chat book, huh? Yeah. I think she might have a perfect found book out already. Uh, that, uh, you know, but I think she went back to a chapbook. I think that's what I think that's what she did. Is she for her third book? She did a chapbook again, which is you know it's important to be doing the chapbooks and beside and beside the, the uh, yeah maybe one more to, to to leave us with. The air is thicker than Burning River hot sauce. This first of day three thirty cigarette will make me buzz fourteen again, and I'm having none of it. Hit after hit after my mind wanders off. The cliff. I can't focus on a damn thing other than the anywhere of not here. I should be writing orange journals on a porch outside of Tucson, but I'm across country, here for love and ruin, by plague of boredom and complacency, upwind of uninspired apathy under the daunting moisture of Lake Erie summer. Stab me with sweet needles. Prick my potential till it expels end times, and I sit up, covered in tonight's sweat. Tomorrow morning. I like that one. Yeah. There's a certain sound to it. And I, I read it faster and I think it sounds like a real fucking serious poem that way. <laughs> I don't know. No, I did, I did like that one. Zena, well, she, uh, I think we're going to get her to record. We'll see what happens. Yeah, that'd be nice. But, but either way. Yeah, either way. So you gave us two Cleveland poets and that's good. And I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think like a lot of cities, New Orleans is kind of like that. New too. Orleans is kind of like that. But I think a lot of those poets, it's hard for them to get a lot of attention outside of the outside of their own city. But there, that doesn't. That's no uh, reflection on the quality of the poetry. It's just hard to get that stuff out there in a way where people pay attention to it. No, and that's you know that's the kind of climate that bred the mimeograph revolution. You know, yeah, so like a, just like breaking into the church basement and like printing a hundred zines, a hundred and hundred fanzines or a hundred mimeograph, you know, basically fanzines and poetry books and just kicking them out by the next day and just letting them go. Yeah. Okay. So you have some two poets that we've never heard of that like have like 350 page books. Well, these are, <laughs> yeah, these are poets you may not have heard of. One of whom is because I don't think he has a lot of work in English. 
the other because he just kind of unfortunately fell into obscurity, and we'll kind of get into that. But I'm going to start with another Italian poet. I know I talked about an Italian poet last time, Amelia Rosselli, and in fact, this poet, um, Antonio Porta, he actually translated some of Amelia Rosselli's English poems into Italian as well, so he's got a connection to the one we talked about last time. And I've just been really fascinated with this 60s, 70s movement of Italian poetry, a lot of which is really great, but for some reason there's little of it that made its way into English. And even in Italian, this this particular book, it's called Piercing the Page, and it's a uh, selected poems of Antonio Porta, put out by Otis Books, Seismic City Editions from Otis College of Art and Design in L.A. There's a lot of interest in Italian poets in L.A. for some reason, but I was I was watching a an interview with the editor who put this together. Maybe the Italian film connection? I don't know. I don't know that there's a direct connection there. I don't know why it is that L.A. has such a fascination with it. But I was watching a video with this uh, editor... Jean-Marie Novi, and he was saying that even in Italy, because a lot of these poets, they really kind of like what you were talking about with, with a lot of poets in Cleveland, but I think a lot of these poets in Italy, they really put these things out in small editions, and there really weren't a lot of copies out there, so most of this was out of print, and even in Italy was not really available until he put this collection together. Uh, so it's, it's a nice little book. Uh, cool. And it's, I think it's you know kind of nice looking too. They did a good job designing it. But Antonio Porta, he was another one of these members of the Neo Avangardia. He was uh, one of the younger members of the Noissimi poets, and I think like a lot of those poets, he really was just trying to push experimentation with language. At least in the beginning of his career, he was originally his name was Leo Palazzi. Uh, and he was from Milan, but there was a famous Milanese poet, Carlo Porta, so he changed his name to Antonio Porta to honor Carlo Porta. But I think there was also this this kind of statement of he was very anti-personal poetry, and anti- like a lot of these members of this group were, just anti-personal, anti-representative poetry. It was more about language as an object. He talks about poetry of things a lot, and it being being the words there as an object and being experimental with that and not really being about communication so much as being about association of words and images and and letting that stand out as poetry. He also talked about poetry as being a terrorist activity and a poem being like a bomb bringing light into a room. That sounds really familiar. Who else talked about that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people that are pushing that kind of experimentation said similar imageries, and I think it's true, right? I mean, that's kind of the advantage of doing experimental poetry that's like very, that. Is yeah, well, that's very that's very Mar- that's very Marinetti of it. Well, yeah, that, well, there's a connection to there. <laughs> okay. And think. was he writing in the '60s? Yeah, so most of this is the '60s. These poems span from 1958 till his death in 1989. I think actually some of the later ones in here were actually not published till after his death. And his later work is a little more lyric and traditional. I don't think I'm going to read any of that today. (laughs) 
But I'm going to read some of his more experimental stuff from the beginning and then read one kind of in the middle period where he's doing things that are more like poetic lists. And there's a really good essay by Umberto Eco in the back of this actually talking about his poetic lists and how they fit into the tradition of classical lists, but how they also diverge from that as well, and it's kind of interesting. But I don't know. I really like him. I think it's really interesting, and I don't think it's someone many people have read. So this is one from maybe kind of the earlier period. I, they, the, the nice thing, if you look at this book, you yeah. can see the Italian, but I'm not going to read the Italian. I'm going to read the English translation. And this one's translated by Paul Vangelesti, who, who's translated a lot of these poets and is, who also lives in L.A. But this book has a collection of different translations. Some of the poems are translated by different people. It's just kind of the best translations of this poet. Vegetables, animals. That dear, watchful forehead penetrated in its surroundings in the vast meadow, circularly galloping, set out in flight, grabbing long grasses on every side until the hemlock grass petrified him. The tree stretched the bones, seeking space among the trees. By a slight tuft of a palm, it surpassed the forest height. Two rangers left a mark on that one. Wish to the axe marks the point of attack. The yellow insect crept in the tree's high leaves, lavish as lake, dawdling. Red and curved like an ivory bridge, the hornbill's beak came to splatter its back. That flower leaves and petals opened to an incredible width. They could hold hummingbirds and heavy swarms of insects. Thick-headed and bungling, snapping it off, the explorer reeks with rough fingers havoc. That rat, needle-like eye, sharpened, fixed on a fast cloud that swelled rising, exploded hissing rough feathers through the air. Desert rat, caught in the open by a watchful falcon, was ripped apart. The bird, the thickness of the bush forgot, sucked a very long worm from the sod, Two rascally friends lying in wait, succeeding in piercing its throat, nailing the prey in its beak, halfway in, halfway out. Yeah. Wow. Some strong imagery. Yeah. And that's, you know, a little bit from his earlier period. Maybe we'll put some image of these, too. He also had an interest in visual poetry. But it was more kind of newspaper cutout sort of things or some of it being just words cut out and some of it being images yeah. cut out and stuck together just to kind of see that juxtaposition and, and make interesting things happen that way. Uh, you know, I don't think it's the most exciting visual poetry, but it's always kind of neat to see a poet experimenting with that, even if it's not something that they develop super far. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, it's always nice to see a little few pieces of that in the in the, uh, in the canon. Yeah, I mean, not everyone has that. <laughs> but I guess, kind of in his mid career, he got to these poems that were a lot of list poems that okay. are kind of nice. So I thought I'd read read one of those. And um, this this is the you know this is one again. This is another Paul Vangelesti translated one, uh, which I like. It's Maybe one of the shorter of the list poems, so maybe I can actually read the whole thing. 
It's from a book that I think I had multiple of these that were all just numbered. It's called As If It Were a Rhythm. They use hooks. They order beans. They love music. They dance in a circle. They leave through the windows. They open the trap door. They change position. They check the schedule full of medicine. They hang from the ceiling. They use scissors. They stamp on the lid. They descend from above. They stretch their underwear. They run with whips. They shake their manes. They suck sugar. They stand flies. The little wings are transparent. The springs snap. If the hook doesn't hold, they use bananas. One can smell the odor. They seal the envelopes. They empty the jugs. While descending in a hurry, they hook them with a stick. They rise from the chairs. They sink their teeth into the kids. They take off their shoes. They follow the score. They go take a bath. They come back through the window. They bend over the toilet. They leave the church. They fall out of chairs. They pour slowly. They kick others around. They sink their fingers in. They get lost in the forest. They re-sew their lips. They slip on the snow. They stick their fingers in. They adhere with honey transfixed by a needle. They fold up their tails. They jump on the roofs. They run to the airport. They dry them with the skins on. They seal the cracks. They lick strawberries. They drink urine. They slip out of orbit. They pet dogs. They gasp with a wheeze. They put on all the headlights. They engage the gears. They raise the flags. They shake out the basin. They wave the plane. They prepare the sand. They manicure their nails. They slit the testicles. If they become pregnant, they bend forward. The feet come out first. They hit with the hand. They make little packages. They climb on crows. They descend on wings. They sharpen the points. They shove harder. They shove them faster. They even out the holes. They get up at four. They walk them to the door. They watch them from above. If they become blue, they raise the ladders with a well-made knot. They are tight on the legs. They watch one another. They jump on the wires. They go down into the lake. They paint some numbers. They decipher some telegrams. They use stakes. They wait for a shower. They paint on the wall. They inject cement. They stick out their lips. They give birth once more. They sprinkle the hair. They squeeze him tightly. They cable ahead. They glide upwards. They bar the windows. They resell the skins. They get out in little pieces. They sew them up in sacks. They sleep until five. They open places to sleep. They seal carefully. They knead with sweat. They pour hot water. They weigh more. They are careful to be elegant. There is a flowered wall. There are velvet shirts. They prepare the cement. They stick some windows in. Sitting on the hill, a string of slobber drips with swollen paws. They need light. The air gets colder. There are no passages. They grow on coral. If they manage to eat themselves, they are silk ties. They design circles. You can see the leaves. They cancel the space. They go up the walls. They yellow in a few hours. They travel over the domes. They seal the cracks. We are dealing with barriers. We are dealing with walls. They live seven days. Wow. That's pretty... I like that, you know, like, unlike a lot of list poems, I like that he steps out of the repetition. There's enough of it to keep it going, but there's the little moments of stepping out which really make it happen. And it doesn't seem like it's trying to build in any meaning. It's happy to just let those things 
sit next to each other. Yeah. And the meaning happened accidentally, which wow, is nice. Wow, that's a good thing about a list poem. Well, but sometimes I think a lot of people with list poems try to build the meaning, right? They try to choose a lot where they're, where they're, how they're sticking the things together, but I like that he doesn't. But that's Antonio Porta. Uh, and I think he's an interesting poet to read. So I'm trying to find that book. We'll put a link, link to it up. It's, it's a good one to check out. Um, that's like some intense writing. Yeah. Well, let's go. I mean, was it like, what what year? I mean, what year was that? Does it have a year on that poem? On that particular poem? Let's see. I bet we've at least got a general year if we don't know exactly. It's from a series of poems that came out sometime between sixty five and sixty eight. Wow, I was gonna say okay. So re- so revolution all across Europe. Yeah, like, all this like sentiment, right? Like that exact time. Well, and it's kind of funny when you look at those movements right in Europe, right? From there's a good period of time there where the 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 art kind of reflected that kind of revolution that was going on, and then it kind of became more traditional again. Yeah, which is a shame. <laughs> but there was that flash. Yeah, you know, and that seems like part of that flash. Yeah, yeah, usually something good. Well, my second poet that I was going to talk about is American, but he's got to got some revolutionary tendencies himself. Have you ever read John Wheelwright? Uh, no. The picture might strike a memory, if anything. Okay, American, uh, 19, 18, 19, end of 19th century. Oh, you're, yeah. Yeah, you're in the right time period here. Strangely, you would think that he'd be more known than he was. I guess part of it's because he died kind of young. So this is a Boston poet. Okay. And... So I like this quote from Alan Wald. This is his kind of short description of him. A Boston Brahmin and heretical Christian who combined his experimental poetry with Marxist political activities. Oh. Interesting. In the... In what era? So, you'll figure this out as I get get through this here. Well, basically, we're talking like the 30s, right? Yeah. Essentially. Okay. But... I think the first time I ever really ran into John Wheelwright was Ashbery talks about him in other traditions. But strangely, you know, he was pretty well known at the time. So he went to Harvard. He was there the same time as a lot of other poets you might have heard of. And he was part of this group of poets called the Harvard Esthetes, including E.E. E. Cummings, Malcolm Cowley, and John Dos Passos. I got I to gotta get the cat. Oh, the cat's upset. We've got to deal with the cat. I know. <laughs> the cat's like, why did you lock me outside? I'll be quiet if you just let me back but in. That would just be would be in the recording the whole time. Huh. And everybody would be like, why didn't you let the cat back in? The cat wants to go here and have a little snack. Go get a snack. But yeah, he was, you know... So you'd think, being in uh, association with all these other poets, he'd be better known than he was. And he was included in a lot of anthologies at the time. Uh, He got expelled from Harvard (laughs) for not attending classes, basically. The story kind of goes, according to Malcolm Cowley, at least, uh, after he wasn't attending classes and the dean called him in to talk about it, he showed up (laughs) with this written note that said... I was absent yesterday after English 14 because I had acute nausea after seeing the moving picture, Broken Blossoms. But he had this 
thick Boston accent, so he spelled nausea some crazy way, like G-N-O-S-S-I-A or something. So the dean was just like, no, nah, that's it. So Kyle used to always say he got expelled for misspelling nausea. <laughs> Maybe that's true. I don't know. That's pretty funny. But, you know, you saw this picture on the cover, and that's how you always see him pictured. He has this huge, luxurious raccoon fur coat, and he would wear that all the time. Yeah, he was an eccentric guy, right? So he was, you know, he was kind of tall. He was six feet tall, time for the time tall. Thin, always wore this raccoon fur coat, going around Boston at a time where people were, you know, this is a wealthy town. People are dressed to the nines. Yep. He kind of is in his way, but... He's definitely an eccentric character and was known for being eccentric. But he got uh, hooked up with the Socialist Party of Massachusetts in the 1930s. And he was kind of part of this group. Have you ever heard of that kind of rebel arts group thing? A lot of it you see it more with visual artists in America. That was like the Socialist Art, art Collective. Okay. He was kind of hooked up with that, but on the writing end. And they would distribute literature to the masses and try to use that as, like, a tool to promote socialism. Wow. Well, he had mixed feelings about it, you know, but but he definitely worked with that a lot, and he was, you know, he very much, he was very Christian, and he came from this New England background. You know, he had famous, you know, old New England relatives and all of that, and that that's a big part of his poetry, and Christianity is a big part of his poetry, but it kind of got... Some, it somewhat replaced his time with on with his, with his ideas about socialism a lot. But he continued to be eccentric, and there's a funny story that he went to a protest wearing his big raccoon fur coat, and someone came up to him and was like, do you really think that's appropriate? We're at a a socialist rally here. That's not really the appropriate dress yeah, for this. Yeah, what do you say? And he responded, but I needed to keep warm. Yeah, that's a good... <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is Boston. It's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a good answer. <laughs> and he worked with Fairfield, Fairfield Porter on that magazine, Arise. And this is a, a quote Porter had about him, that there was a party. They were going to a fancy Boston party where everyone was all dressed in tuxedos and all that. And he said, Wheelwright came to the car in fancy dinner clothes with his raccoon coat on carrying a soapbox. We stopped on a corner in Roxbury and Wheelwright stepped out put the soapbox up and started orating to the passerbys. So that's, that's kind of how we were right was, you know, he was. <laughs> that's pretty like, that's pretty Dada, Kurt Schwitters of him. <laughs> like Schwitters would like stop in the middle of the road and pull out his paints and like open up his like portfolio and he would like drop, drop like a drop of green ink. He's like, number 432 <laughs> green ink, you know, whatever. That's a terrible sweaters because he's like German, but, you know. <laughs> I want to hear like, you do a German accent, yeah. but, you know. Whatever. I can't I can quite do a, a, German, a, a German accent, but. Yeah, but that, yeah, he would do crazy stuff like that. He was at the, he was at Yado for a little while, the literary colony, and he got kicked out of there, too. He got kicked out of Yado? <laughs> yeah. Apparently, he, uh, People were upset because he was in the bathroom all day, taking a really long bath. He was just, like, hanging out in the tub, eating bananas while contemplating a little black Buddha statue that he bought. That sounds great. 
but people got upset, and so he got kicked out of Yato. Because I think it might have been the only bathroom or something. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's pretty good, though. He's in the 30s. He's just sitting in the tub, eating bananas. Contemplating Buddha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this guy sounds like a quack, man. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and his poetry is, I think, pretty amazing. He only published three poetry collections during his lifetime. Uh, his first one was in 33, The Rock and the Shell, and then another one in 38, Mirrors of Venus, which is kind of cool. I think I'm going to read one from that. It's a collection of sonnets, but it's a novel told in sonnets forms. Oh, wow. In sonnet form. It's pretty... Who else does it? Does someone else do that? <laughs> I mean, it's a little loose conception of a novel, but there's certainly a plot that runs through it. And there's like an introduction, introducing all the sonnets. And and I'll show you when I read it. After each sonnet, then there's another like footnote beneath the sonnet explaining part of the sonnet. It's kind of cool. Wow. That, is, that sounds pretty cool. A footnote. And then uh, and then he had one more that was after he had write, really gotten into socialism called Political Self-Portrait in 1940. And then he died really young. He died in 1941. Uh, he was hit by a drunk driver at the intersection of Mass Ave and Beacon Street. What? Yeah. Wow. So he was pretty I've young. Definitely been to that corner. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. You measuring something over here? Yeah, I was just measuring with how long this is. <laughs> okay. Just making sure. All right, let's let's put the measuring tape away. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're... I'm good. I'm good. And so, I don't know, he didn't get a lot of attention because of that initially, but then the Selected Poems was published in 1941 after his death, but I think a lot of people didn't pay attention to that. But then New Directions Made a put out this one that I have here, this Collected Poems, and they put that out in, in 1972, but I just don't think it got that much attention. Right? I mean, some people definitely noticed it, but it didn't get that far. Kenneth Patchens liked it, and he said, when recorders begin the work of sorting the shaft from the wheat, the name of John Wheelwright should find its way to a great many lips. Nice. So that's a pretty nice person to have say that, to have Kenneth Passion say that about you, right? I mean, I like I like all his poetry, but those first two books especially are interesting because he does have this kind of Christian thing going on. Not kind of. There's some heavy Christian stuff going on. But in this very weird sort of mystical way, and then especially as he starts to get some of these other – he has these kind of opulent, decadent, aesthetic ideas. The imagery is really ornate in his poetry, and it kind of merges with this Christian mysticism, and it's got this really interesting thing going on. Okay. So I don't know. Let's hear a couple poems from him here. Sure. So so this first one – I'm not really going to read the whole thing of this. But in his first collection, some of my favorite poems of his are these really long poems. I don't even know if you can call them poems. Because <laughs> they cut in and out between these kind of prose parts and parts that are actually poetry. But the imagery is so ornate and so wonderful. And it feels like something kind of hermetic, like you're supposed to understand what all these imageries, imagery adds up to. So this is the beginning of this one called North Atlantic mm. Passage. And the first section is called The Argument, and there's actually this whole pro prose section before what I'm about to read. I'm not going to read all that prose stuff, but if you're reading it, I mean, it's just this great, wonderful, weird amalgam of things. Opal black, iridescent with rainbows, 
Rainbows opalescent from rainbows reflections, the while the liquescent rainbow's crescent fades, surface on surface, pressed down, weighted together, solid under the sky, stretching undulous, like pavements lustrous of houses of prayer, of banqueting, black marble pavements veined with green, creamy foam, bullets in embryo, clustering round a cold bullet mold, ah, leaden dragon. In those claws of yours, you prison flawless bubbles of crystal, toss them with your teeth. You wash and crash about through leaden water, yet never smash nor flaw the fashing balls. Over volcanic waves, spray falls like wind-blown waterfalls. The spray veils caves. The caves may spin with chrysoprase in gimlets of electric light. All good bottles are blistered in bubbles. Cracked seeds of bottle glass could be set with pearl and platinum. From mirrored caves of radiance, scimitar cleaves scimitar. Above the sandy plains which stretch below, Venusberg, Xanadu, red-bearded Rip Van Winkle's mountain, Ararat, the Assassin's mountain, the Sinai of Prometheus, Christ's. Peace on thy hill, Jerusalem. Across the plains, the echelon and reinforced salient flank headlong advances, stiffening hanks of molasses candy, of plagues, conquests, ravenous religions, prairie fires, out over arid vales and ranges, out beneath extulent fans of dominance, over and pounding mallets of conflict, across like ambushed savages, the lank shoots of fleeting, melting, persisting, disappearing, melted, gone. Gone the shreds of that marauding ardor, the arcs, crescents of phosphorescence, the mallet, the scythe, swords, the sheathed scimitar. We lift up our eyes into the hills from whence come sloppy waves. Sloppy waves are left. Is that all? Whence but from hills come nostalgia to fill the eyes with tears. Let us cross the river and rest under the shade of trees. And that's just a little section of this you know, that long goes work. on for pages. <laughs> really? It's a super long poem. I mean, I don't know that it's that long, but I mean, that's just a small portion of it, and you can tell. It's pretty, like I said, it's very ornate. It's wonderful. Though. The language is just great. But his shorter things are good, too. And that section that I that I said is sonnets that add up to a novel. I thought I'd read a couple of those, which are shorter, but also weird in their own ways. This one I just really... like there's some visual stuff going on. Well, sometimes he does kind of do some interesting things with the, with, the, with the spacing, like things will get some spaces in between the lines yeah, and the cool. words and not all start on the left margin, you know? Yeah. Which is nice. This one's called Getaway. Bounteous creation. Baking soda cures headaches. Birds could breed without their song-dyed breasts. Cheer up at my necktie stirrup. My reflection waits for me, pecks gilt gesso horns of plenty never pecked away. O oh, bird type of good intention. O oh, self-immortality, alive in act, not act of wedding beak or appetite, but act inane. Catch thumb in thumb and finger. Sugar's sweet, so is he as thumb protrudes through finger and thumb in pure act in the hell of self-immortal, pure as hell, or a Susa march, the idiot's Jesus, forever. Bye-bye, chirrup. Goodbye forever, raven, bat, and dove. Go to bed. Light the light. 
I'll be home late tonight, lest you starve in my absence out the window. Good intention. Goodbye forever, chirrup. Bye-bye. And then he has a footnote underneath, which are all in Roman numerals. This one's Roman numeral 23, 13C in parentheses. Farce is the positive theme, but to contrast the immortal self unfavorably with eternal solidarity is not to deny the resurrection. Emotional qualities of religious doctrine are more important than rational qualities. To recover the emotions and acts originally conveyed through the doctrine of the resurrection reject immortality. In its current form, it amounts to a desire for hell. Oblivion of self conveys nowadays membership in the body of Christ. Z gives wise good intention, liberty to the absolute freedom of hell. <laughs> so it's a crazy little work. And I mean, some of that so is like, like referencing. Sort of like, sort of, I don't know. It's like that, like, um, who's writing? Is like C.S. Lewis writing at the same time? Is it like, that's, yeah, that's that, like, kind of around Christian the similar time. Thing, yeah. Christian philosophy thing later, going on yeah. in the 20s and 30s. Yeah. So, you know? Well, in that, it's kind of referencing the characters in this sonnet novel, but it's still funny. Every single one of these sonnets has this kind of footnote underneath commenting on the sonnet. But he's not all seriousness. Oh, I'm going to read two more, though. Before I read the funny... Well, maybe I'll read the funny one first. So this one, I thought, is him kind of being humorous for a second. It's really short, too. It's called Rude Armchair, and it's for Philip Horton. So I think this is addressed to this Philip Horton here. Yeah. Once in a stanza abandoned by Hart Crane, waiting for you to open your octagonal example of romantic gothic, I thought of those who take repose in depots. I thought how Negroes like new shoes, watermelon and choo-choos, and I nodded good evening to an armchair who had the back and shoulders of my own father, but who did not have manners enough to creak good evening yourself by way of reply. But at least it did not, as you did, produce that unemployed Salvation Army Santa Claus dressed up like Ezra Pound. Whoa. It's <laughs> a little dig in in Ezra Pound there at the end. Wow. That Salvation... Uh, that Salvation Army Santa Claus dressed up like Ezra Pound. Wow. <laughs> I, I like that tradition of kind of, you know, insulting other poets in your poem. It's kind That's of pretty nice. good. I like them. I like them. That <laughs> you insulted as power. I like them. Mm-hmm. All right. But I wanted to read one more short one that I like that's just really pretty, I think. In the bathtub, the memnocene. Away in this chambered secret, I'll draw sound out of its cistern. Pavement sealed and drink life water from rivuleted water. Life of here excluded wind and sun. Intrude your person, knock or voice without a message of great joy or doom. I'll answer your sweet rattle with unfond silence or present at your fond touch a hollow turtle shell or vacant snakeskin. So, I mean, John Wheelwright, I think, is just whatever you make of the meaning of his poetry. He's just this beautiful... Weird poet, and I think you should all read him. I know. I feel like uh, I feel like he showed up in like one of those American history or modern poets anthologies. That's very possible. Yeah, maybe he he shows up up um, in the Joris um, Rothenberg uh, anthology. That could be. Yeah, uh, you know, I think I think that's probably where I I ran into him, but I never quite dug too deep. He sounds pretty 
Yeah, you should check him out, man. And he's always wearing that raccoon fur coat. I want a raccoon fur coat. I mean, I would wear, I would definitely wear it out maybe once or twice, but... Um, <laughs> it would be hard in New Orleans. It would be hard in New Orleans. But there's that tradition, right? What of the, uh, the ancient tra- tradition of the Christos fools would wear fur coats in the summer to prove that they were mad. Is that really what it was? Yeah. That's I mean, I don't think that's what he was doing. It's cold in Boston. It's cold in Boston. <laughs> and they were like telling him that he shouldn't like wear his shit out. I guess so. But listeners, we are not done yet. We are about to have a visitor by phone, Nathan Hawks, who's going to share with us two of his own poets he thinks he has not he, heard of. What's he going to call? Is he calling? Is he calling? Is, is he now? calling? Is that him now? Hi, guys. Where are you dialing in from? I'm dialing in from Chicago, Illinois. How's it up there in September? Well, today it was like 80 degrees, which is really hot for us. So we're sweating. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that must, that must sound funny to y'all in New Orleans. I think we're probably about the same temperature at this yeah, point. A little breezy down here, so things have wow. been nice. Yeah, we've we've had a really mild summer, and uh, but it's but it's hanging on, so it's kind of nice actually. Cool. So we're doing our segment here on uh, two poets you've never heard of, and uh, two Joseph, poets you probably haven't heard. Of. You probably never. You probably haven't heard of six poets you probably haven't heard of, but you're you're giving us two of them. You're giving us two. <laughs> Two of six. One, one third of the equation. Correct. <laughs> so who are you going to talk about today? Uh, so I'm going to talk about two uh, non-English you know, non language poets. Uh, one is a Japanese poet named Chika Sagawa, and the other is a French language poet, Joyce Mansour. Uh, so yeah, so maybe I'll start with uh, Sagawa. All right, I've never heard of this poet at all. I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, Shikisagawa is uh, sort of just coming into English, um, and I had never heard of Shikisagawa until um, I picked up a collected poem um, translated by Awako Nakayasu and published by Canarium Books, which is like an independent... Um, press. Yeah, I like and their press. Published, yeah, they do some good stuff, right? And uh, they published this in uh, 2015. And I think I picked it up like not long after it came out on the recommendation of my friend James Shea. Okay, and yeah. I started reading it until just this last year, and it's really, really remarkable and lovely material. Um. Can we tell you a little bit about her? Absolutely. From what I know? Yeah. Yeah, so all I, all I know about Chika Sagawa comes from the um, really fine introduction by the translator, Nakayaku. Um, so apparently, Chika Sagawa, um, her real name was uh, Kawasaki Chika, and Chika Sagawa was a pen name um, that she took. She was born in 1911 and um, sort of came of age when Japanese artists and writers were starting to look at, uh, you know, the West, and especially um, she was involved with a circle that was very influenced by the, uh, like, 
the you know the the, the modernist movements like Dada and Futurism. Oh, okay, cool. I didn't even know yeah, that sure. that made it to Japan. I didn't even know that really made it to Japan. Yeah, I mean, it was you know all this like uh, you know late nineteenth century French writing symbolists were just being um, translated into Japanese, and there was a kind of apparently just based on a little bit I've read, apparently there was a, a real deep interest in in some of these uh, Western Western trends at the time. And this is this is the nineteen thirties. Um, she she born nineteen eleven moves from Hokkaido to Tokyo in 19, 19, maybe 29 or 1930 and starts publishing right away in 1930 with some of the sort of small avant-garde groups who were, all, you know, already trying to incorporate uh, what they could, um, you know, get from the West into their, into their work. She translated James Joyce's chamber music into Japanese, which must and then huh. quite a task. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, um, yeah, so apparently based on, you know, again, based on the introduction, the, the incorporation of, of Western modes um, and even, like, Western vocabulary words was fairly controversial in, in Japanese poetry. And there was always this kind of uh, debate as to, like, who went too far um, but um, the translator um, points out that, you know, Sagawa was, was kind of exceptional in the way she was able to straddle and contrast um, elements of Japanese verse and Western verse. So I'm just going to read this little passage that I thought was, yeah, yeah. Um, was kind of uh, uh, right on, on point in that regard from the introduction. So this is the translator talking. Um, she says, one of the most interesting aspects of Sagawa's work is the way she straddles so many contrasting elements of East and West, nature and the urban, archaic and brand new poetic lexicons. It is perhaps her deafness at managing this dislocated, tenuous ground that gets her work so much currency, even so many years after her death. While many Japanese people were struggling with their complex feelings about the way Western culture was rushing into Japan, Sagawa seems to have embraced it in the, in, in, in the prose text that the translator had been talking about called Wind Passing Between Trees, Sagawa writes, it is not so much about searching for boundaries, but rather the precise snapping together of the infinite illusions on either side of that single line with the cross sections of a leaping field of vision. And yet the highs and lows of the artistic rhythm are determined by whether that field of vision is near or far. So there you have it, this kind of, you know, weaving together of, you know, things across different boundaries is sort of what the translator John drawing attention to, which creates a kind of field of vision. So I, I picked a poem that might be fun to read. Oh, yeah, now I'm excited to hear this. This sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, you want to hear a poem? Yeah, absolutely. So here's a, here's a short poem. Most of your poems are pretty short. Um, uh, a poem called Opal. It's like a, a mineral. Pausing in front of the entrance and peering into the window, looking back repeatedly, the twilight going home. A sluggish waltz is played by the river. The sound of the clogs beats upon the wall. Damp air flows past my cheek and a cloud crosses the puddle. My vision is about to come to a halt. 
I just, I just love the play of the senses in that poem, the sound, touch, the vision, you know, all mixing together there. Yeah. Exhausting each other. I mean, I can feel the kind of traditional aspects of it, but it but it seems much more centered in the self sure. than I would expect from Japanese poetry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially the way it sort of narrows in on the, the first person in that last line. And it's totally, actually. Sadly, she died when she was like 26. No, 24. Oh, what? She had, yeah, she died of stomach cancer. And um, it was January Like I mean I, I I mean I even think of like Mishima and that's so much later and and that's fiction which is easier to do that with and he still got a lot of flack for for being more Western as a writer I can't I mean that's right. it's hard for me to even imagine in the 30s <laughs> I, know, I know I know it's startling right I mean I, and I don't quite know too much about her biography except what's in the intro here but it, you know apparently she just fell in with the right I mean she was a obviously a gifted, you know, precocious um, young writer, and she sort of just fell in with the right crowd at the right time. But, uh, yeah, it's remarkable. Do you, do you have another one you could read for us? Yeah, I got um, one, maybe two more short ones. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This, this, is a, this is a sweet one. I love this title. Please cover me with dirt every year. <laughs> Weird. Listlessly walking silently, clinging to the honeysuckle on the hedge, crouched beside the road. Oh, decrepit old winter, the hair on your head has dried, and those who walk upon it have died too, along with their memory. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, she turns the kind of seasonal nature you know, elements of Japanese poetry a little on the head there. They're so dark and kind of bitter. I think, you know, that was on her mind already at a young age. Yeah, I wasn't thinking these poems were coming from like a 23-year-old or 22, or however old she was, is she when she's writing them. Yeah, somewhere between age 18 and 24. I mean, she didn't have much time in there. It's amazing. It is. Well, I'd really be interested to see. I don't know. I would love to talk to someone who's read her poetry in Japanese because my understanding always has been of a lot of traditional Asian poetry that it's so much the interplay of the characters and them having multiple meanings or complex meanings, not so much multiple meanings, but yeah, kind of multiple mm-hmm. meanings. That it's, I wonder how she's navigating that. I feel like it's probably even more interesting in the Japanese because it's probably navigating that sort of space of these I statements 
with the more traditional way of using, like you're saying, I mean, I think that is pulling on a lot of that kind of changing of the seasons imagery that you get. It'd be interesting to see how those interact. It's probably even, you know, I mean, I liked it in the translation, but I bet it's even more interesting to see. Right. To see how she, how she plans that and to see what, um, you know, how Western, I mean, she, you know, apparently she's actually using French and English Portuguese, you know, words um, in, you know, in her, um, in, you know, written in, in the Japanese writing form called katakana. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Is she using katagana or hiragana? Yeah, where they're, where they're telling things about phonetically, so she, she, she's probably mixing. Is she using a mix of those, you think? Of, of katagana and hiragana? Is she using a mix of katagana and hiragana, or is she just using one, or do you not know? I think I think so. Just glancing again at the introduction, uh, with the translator gets a little bit of a reading of one poem and talks about the interplay with the different characters. Huh. Yeah, that's real interesting. Wow. Right. All right. I want to hear. I want to hear one. I want to hear another one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe one last one. Yeah, yeah. Um, or as many as you want, really. But uh, yeah, they're, they're lovely. They're they're pretty brief. They're short. If you want to give us two more, that'd be great. Here's another one. Another one playing with uh, you know seasons again. Um, seasonal night, loaded with young green leaves. The last train of the light rail goes by quietly, like the back alley of the, the season. It crawled along like a snail through the larch forest and to the cabbage fields. <laughs> Those with no business here should go ahead and disembark six leagues to the dye factory deep in the woods, gleaming upon the dark evening road a trickle of sap. That's my favorite one. Uh, yeah, I that love was, that. That's good. It feels it feels so yeah, much. Yeah, the, the yeah. darkness and the, the, the vividness of it. I just love it. Yeah. Well, and it feels so much like early, like futurist and surrealist poems, where where that mix of the modern technology and the modern things creeping into the to the observational right. imagery to the cabbage you know? fields. Yeah. Yeah, it's a creepy into the lyric, like nature, nature scene or whatever. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, that, oh, that was a really nice one. Do you have one more, one more from her before we move on? Yeah, let's do, let's, yeah, let's do one more. Um, how about Song of the Sun? We'll go on a, we'll go out on a fiery note here. <laughs> a white body whirling in the searing wind kneels down in a shorn-off darkness. The beasts grown weary of sunlight and pleasure howl at a substitute for night because Dante's Inferno does not exist there. But the old instruments have stopped playing in the mirror of diamonds. The snow curves, spreading its wings like the light. And then the veil conceals the music of the tattered air. And a voiceless season on some shore will radiate in youth and honor. Wow. <laughs> so, 
reminds me a little bit of Rambo and a visionary. Uh, yeah, it is a little more visionary for sure, and it's kind of got those. Yeah, I don't know. That's nice too. But they're 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 all a little different too. Yep, it's good. So where so who where what are you reading this from? What is there a is there kind of a definitive English translation collection to pick up? Yeah, as far as I know, this is the only available um, collection in English. It's just called the Collected Poems of Chika Sagawa, translated by Sawako Nakayatsu. Apologies if I'm massacring the name. And uh, published by Canarium Books. In 2015, I think it's... Oh, yeah, you say Canary. Oh, that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to check that out, and we will put the link up on the show notes, too. That's cool. Yeah. I want to see what... That, I just want to look that book up right now and see. Um, say that again, too? Canarium books? Canarium, yeah, like the bird, but turned into a Canarium. <laughs> it's, it's if you tried to pretend that you knew how to say Canary in Latin. I don't think they had Canaries. <laughs> It's where they keep canaries. Yeah, it's where you keep yeah, canaries. They keep them in the canarium, right? <laughs> Don't you have a canarium? Mine is full right now. They're from. They're from. Uh, they're from uh, Marfa. I have a cockatoo-arium. Canariums from Marfa. Yeah, their their little tag says Ann Arbor, Marfa, and Iowa City. So uh, three very writerly places, I guess. <laughs> Uh, cool. Yeah, I'm on their catalog now. <laughs> well, yeah, that, uh, that was great. And I have never heard anything from that poet. That was awesome. Oh, well, yeah. Chica Sagawa. Yeah, Collection of poems. Nice. And so yeah. I think you said you were going to talk next about Joyce Mansour. And I love Joyce Mansour. I don't think that it's the most well-known poet in the world here. Yeah, so... So, so you guys have heard of Joyce Mansour, but, you know, I think it's the kind of poet that we should constantly encourage <laughs> others to read. But, yeah, absolutely, she's not widely, widely read. Um, I, 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 I mean, it's probably one of the only surrealist female poets that there's actually a lot of work that you can find. Right. And it's, yeah, and that's what makes makes her so 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 fantastic and so interesting. The way the way that she, you know, uh, just sort of uh, works within a very a very masculine uh, club, for lack of a better word, you know. Yeah, well, and I think that's what part of what's really interesting about. I don't know. It's it's a different kind of surrealism. I feel like when I read her poetry, because there is yeah. this very feminine bent to it that's nice, but it still has the sharp edges that surrealism always has to it. I don't know exactly yeah, what I mean she, by that, but <laughs> from line, from line to, yeah, from line to line, she's as startling and and, and often shocking as. Aaron Allen or Brett Allen. More so a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. More so, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. You got you got some Joyce Mansour to read for us here? Sure, sure. So I'm going to read um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, I don't know if you want a little, a little rundown. Of oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess I, I forgot. We should talk about her a little. about her, except that she's, you know, she, she, she's, she's sort of second, you might say second-generation surrealist. She was, um, you know, very much born into an international family. She was born in England, but grew up in Cairo, um, and grew up bilingual. French and English, but so she's sort of a francophone Egyptian. <laughs> it's a kind of weird identity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but in the 1950s, um, after after um, you know marrying um, a, a second husband, um, she began publishing. Um, she met she you know she met Andre Breton in 1953, apparently, and um, you know from that point on, really. You know, put out an impressive amount of both poetry and well, not both, just uh, poetry. You know, prose works and and plays. Um, and so I have this wonderful edition um, that uh, Black Widow Press put out, <coughs> which is called Essential Poems and Writing. Um, Joyce Mensur. So it's not everything. Um, yeah, I don't think everything quite been translated. And by the way, she did translate her own work since she was bilingual, but these translations, I believe, are all done by a translator named Serge Gavronsky. Uh, so, give him credit. Sweet. So, yeah, so I'll read a little bit. Her work, you know, a lot of her work is written in um, series. So it's sort of like a book with a title, and then you just have like a, a succession of you know, 20, 30, 40 pages of short little poetic blobs that <clears throat> may be linked or may not be, but they sort of coexist under the same very title. Uh, so I'll, I'll just read a couple bits from her first book, which was called Cree or Screams, and then I'll jump to a later book and do another one. Here's the first couple bits of Cree. I love your stockings holding your legs. I love your corset embracing your quivering body, your wrinkles, your dancing breasts, your hungry look, your old age against my taut body, your shame before my all-knowing eyes, your dresses smelling of your body's decay, all that final revenge on men who turned me away. The snail snagged into my astral jaw, the horns growing behind my ears, my bleeding wounds that never heal, my blood turning to water, dissolving, embalming. I choke my children to satisfy their whims. All that makes you makes of me your lord and god. Or screams. The blind games of your hand on my trembling breast, the slow movements of your paralyzed tongue in my pathetic ears, all my beauty drowned in your hollow eyes, death in your belly beating my brain, all that makes of me a queer young lady. There's a man sick with a thousand hiccups. A man shaken by others' thoughts, defined by his shadow always following, ready to eat him in a sunless second, ready to become master of his flesh, 
ready to drag him through outer space, a rootless man become a star. So that's four four sections of the first book, Screams. <clears throat> wow, those are like really... It's, I, I mean, I didn't remember those. those are, there's something really subversive about her relationship to women in those. That's nice. I mean, whew. Yeah, I came. I came across an interesting. Um, there, there's a uh, interesting bit of scholarship uh, you may have read called "Mere Images: Women, Surrealism, and Self-Representation." By Whitney Chadwick, who is a scholar. Yeah, I've looked at that. Yeah, women um, in surrealism, and uh, she she has this this I think interesting uh, observation about Mansoor. Um, she says that uh, in Mansoor's work, there's a paradoxical relation to the male surrealist subject. In Mansoor's work, identity slides between male and female, past and present, the dead and the living, mother, daughter, um, and often, often along paths that intersect. Often along paths that intersect with Kahlo. There she's driving. Oh yeah, yeah. I think, you're, I think you're picking up on that in a way. Either. Well, there's something like a little bit always. I mean, I love the surrealist. Don't get me wrong, but there's something a little uncomfortable about, spe- right. especially Breton, like the way that he thinks of women. I mean, he's certain, he certainly idolizes them and places them on a pedestal, but it's, but it's very, you know, it's very, yeah. Uh, it's very uncomfortable in that he doesn't really give them humanity in some sense. <laughs> I don't know. I guess. Maybe, maybe agency. Agency. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of funny to see someone in that, see a woman in that scene where that comes through so much in her poetry, right? Like she's yeah. kind of, but she's doing it in a, in a way where she's almost making fun of it, but in a beautiful yeah. way, you know? Yeah. Where the imagery is still beautiful. It's pastiche. It's definitely like, <laughs> right. Making fun of it or like, or like working within the, working within the, the tradition, but also breaking out of it at the same time. Yeah, I guess so. Working within, yeah, within putting herself in the slot of that of that kind of subject. But what happens is that then it starts to wobble, you know, and it's, there's this there's a kind of rhythm built up between. I guess maybe because of the wobble, um, is it a, you know what what gender position is she occupying? Yeah. Well, and also dealing with those already built-in sort of surrealist themes of the unconscious, and you're right, that's always like dipping into death a little bit. Right, I mean, sex and death and yeah. the, the grotesque um, is blowing up all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, there's a there's a big connection there anyway, right? <laughs> As the French say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to read one more little um, uh, sexy bit, and then, and then one more maybe that, that is very explicitly a sort of... Uh, I don't know. I would say very explicitly a, a, a critique of masculinity. Sure. Sure. All right. So this, so I have I have a little section from her second book um, called Day Sugar, which means torn apart. Um, and again, this is another book where 
the songs are sort of in a sequence. They don't have independent titles. They could sort of all be read as one, you know, long work or, you know, interconnected sort of segmented sections. Mm-hmm. I want to sleep with your with you elbow to elbow, hair untangled, our sex interwoven with your mouth as my pillow. I want to sleep with you back to back without a breath to separate us, without words to distract us, without eyes lying to us, without clothing. I want to sleep with you breast against breast and as sweaty, shining with a thousand spasms, consumed by the mad inertia of ecstasy, spread eagled on your shadow, hammered by your tongue, and die happy, stuck in the rabbit's rotten teeth. <laughs> wow, that is a killer ending. <laughs> really, really good ending. That's pretty, much, that's pretty much why I wanted to read it, because that ending is... Unbelievable. The rabbit's rush stuck in the rabbit's rotten teeth. Wow. <laughs> that, that may be a orgasm performed by Paul. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. One more. One more from uh, from a later a later book um, called uh, "A Path Birds of Prey." This poem is called. Rhabdomancy. I don't know if I'm saying that quite right. Rhabdomancy is a like divination by rods, right? So like sort of okay, yeah. Something using using a big stick, which I think she's being Freudian here. <laughs> uh, Rhabdomancy. Does your husband neglect you? Invite his mother to spend the night in your room. Then collapsing in the closet near your bed, throw your omega together with a fistful of salamanders in the mirror where shadows leap. Does your husband flee from you? That celestial CEO needs to go on a diet, piss in his soup when he lies down next to you, white and happy. Be kind, but be able to force feed a goose with octopus messages and a madrigore hair. Kiss his penchants with a silken shaving brush. Sprinkle his mop with blood and suit. And especially smile when in your arms he dies. Despite himself, he'll be thinking of you. That's wonderful. I mean, I guess it is in some ways explicitly critical, but it just has such wonderful be able to force feed a goose with octopus messages. That's going to stick with me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. So we will definitely tell our listeners you should you should read some Joyce Mansour if you haven't. It's funny, you know. yeah, go they're ahead. They're all yeah. good. They're all. They're, I'm just gonna. Say, I was just saying they're all sort of as, as, as darling and wonderful as the ones I've read. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. I was just gonna say. I think you know. I always, I, I have given my creative writing students a surrealist packet every time, and you know, I, I always feel like I need to 
try to find some female surrealists to include in there. And that's the only one that I can find that's truly one that is from the time period. I usually also include uh, Simone Vat, okay. who's a little later. I don't know. That's kind of a cheating. And I think she's she also has some other ethnicity coming in. But uh, but they they always love the Joyce Mansour post poems the most. I think I think there's something that it speaks to more of a modern sensibility in some ways. I don't know. Yeah, and there's a, I mean, yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a tone in her poems that are, that is just so sure of itself, and and line to line, there's there's no hesitation, even as she's, you know, inhabiting these moments and identities that are wrought with <laughs> in betweenness and something that you would, you know, I think in the hands of the lesser poet would would, would feel. Um, becomes like well i mean not all of them but some of them i think unlike a lot of other other of the french surrealists it stays in one place a little more so you you kind of feel like it's a bizarre landscape but you kind of feel like you're in a landscape rather than being thrown around from one place to the next which is nice too Well, that was that. Yeah. Uh, those were two really interesting and great poets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot. You can find a link to um, Black Widow Press. Um, who, who Black Widow has been wonderful putting out all kinds of neglected surrealist texts. Yeah, we know them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, we love we we talked about them. I think the last six poets we did because which was on also on your advice. I talked about Bernard Bedour. And, uh, yeah, right. yeah, but, but yeah, they, they, at Crescent City Books here in New Orleans, uh, they carry all of Black Widow's things because Joe, Joe Phillips, Joe Phillips is, owns the bookstore. Yeah. So that's wonderful. And in fact, and we're real excited because Marianne Cause is coming to read here Next at week. the beginning of the month, oh, wow. which is going to be nice. That's wonderful. Yeah. She, I mean, more than anyone else, she has. She has brought a wealth of, of uh, French language and oh, like, yeah. English. <laughs> so that's wonderful. I'd love to. I'd love to meet her and say thank you. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Uh, we're excited. Well, thank you, Nate. Uh, that that was great. Another. That was great. Yeah, another. Another episode. episode of Good Six Poets. It's I gonna be a long I... episode, but I think it's gonna be great. Thank you for inviting me.